0: but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents' and grandparents' for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60 and has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list Four, when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense saying things that they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. For for scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favouritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious Reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, the sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. May God bless that reading.
1: Thank you, Peter. Well, all of us have experienced family at some level in our lives. Some have had difficult family experiences, full of trauma and disappointment, and if you're in that basket today, then our sympathies and our prayers are with you. Others are blessed enough to have had families that are supportive and loving, and overall it's been a positive experience, and I've got to say that I'm fortunate enough to be in the latter category. I grew up in a loving family with godly parents, and by and large it was a happy and enjoyable experience. I'm also blessed with my immediate family to have a wife and kids who I love with all of my heart, and I'm pretty sure they love me as well most of the time. But I remember the day when my immediate family really commenced. It was a day when I was 19 years of age at Mentone Baptist Church and a blonde bombshell walked in the front doors. Her name was Betty. No, only joking. It was Kim. (laughs) And she walked in the front doors. And I remember there were two things I remember about Kim on that first day. The first thing I remember thinking was, man, she's all right. Wouldn't mind getting to know her, she's pretty cute. The second thing I noticed about her is that when she saw me, her eyes went really wide and I'm pretty sure she was thinking, what a babe. (laughs) That's the way I remember it anyway. Kim might tell you a very different story, so please do not ask her after the service. (laughs) I don't know if it was my rugged good looks or my very manly shoulder-length hair, but whether it was love at first sight or she simply fell under my irresistible charms, what I do know is that a couple of months later, we started dating, and within a couple of years, we were married. Over the years, I've come to see how blessed I am to have a wife like Kim. She is loyal and strong. Uh, she is has been a faithful wife and a wonderful mother to our children, and I thank the Lord for her every single day. Now, some of you would be aware, and some of you wouldn't be aware, but I met our oldest daughter, Adele, on the same day that I met Kim. Kim was a single mum at a very young age. Kim was uh, Adele was six months old when I met Kim. And over time, I fell in love not just with Kim, but also with Adele. When we got married, I was 21 and Kim had just turned 20. And we moved in together. It'd be fair to say that there were many adjustments that we needed to make. And at times we lacked the maturity to um, properly make those adjustments. People say the first year of marriage is the most difficult now, if you're getting married soon, if you're a young person here, don't let that be a self-fulfilling prophecy over your marriage, because I know many people in their first year of marriage has been wonderful and fulfilling and enjoyable. Uh, it's just that Kim and I aren't one of those couples. In fact, this week I asked her, uh, what's one word you'd use to describe our first year of marriage? And without batting an eyelid, she said, dreadful. <laughs> I-, I looked at her, I said, dreadful? And she said, don't tell the church that, will you? And I said, no. <laughs> As if i tell the church you said that. That would just be wrong. And so she said, not dreadful, um, uh, tough, or um, an adjustment. And she said, why? What were you going to say? And I said, I was just going to say nightmare. But um <laughs> thought that sounded accurate. But the truth is that neither of us really had the maturity in our first year of marriage to deal with all the things that were going on. We started off marriage with a Adele already, and I struggled at first to be a husband and a dad instantly. Now, as I look back over the years, I can see God's sovereignty in the whole situation. I find it extraordinary to think that that God chose me to to raise Adele as her dad, and I think God had a a hand in that in putting our family together. And Adele has been an amazing blessing in our lives, and I think you'd agree today that she's become a beautiful woman. She's on the sound desk today. She's probably very red in the face, but she's 18 years old, uh, so for all the single guys, don't even think about it. She's not dating until she's 30, I've told her, and the daughter's 30 years age, of age, uh, Lenny can start now. <laughs> That's fair, go for it, buddy. But we love Adele, and she's been a huge blessing in our lives. I have a nickname for her, I call her Delba. In fact, all my kids have a nickname, none of them like it, um, but I use it anyway, because um, it's a, a term of endearment, it's a term of affection, and so her name is Delba. Delba is gentle, she's servant-hearted, she's quiet. She's loving and she's loyal. She's serving the Lord in leadership. She's currently doing a Cert for in Christian ministry. And apart from a very small period of time in her mid-teens when she was dating a lovely young man, uh, she has been an incredible blessing to our family. A couple of years after we were married, uh, we had Taylor. And I had the privilege and traumatic experience of delivering Taylor. I remember when she was born, she had the cord wrapped around her neck and my face went ghostly white simply because her face was purple, and I didn't know what to do. And So I remember the the midwife jumping in, grabbing the cord and pulling it over her head, and all of a sudden, to our great relief, Taylor started to breathe, and the very next thing she wanted to do was eat, and nothing has changed in her life (laughs) since day one. The morning, first thing she does, wants to eat. I pick her up from school, first question, Dad, what's for dinner? I say, hi, Dad. Hi, Dad, what's for dinner? I give her the same answer every time. She's never satisfied with it. I say, we're having food. I don't understand why she's not satisfied with that answer. I've never lied yet. That's what dads do. Her nickname is Rooney. It started as Taylorina, then it went to Taylor Rooney, and then I just shortened it to Rooney. There's a soccer player called Rooney, and the principal in Ferris Bueller's Day Off is called Ed Rooney, and so I just thought shortening it to Rooney would make sense. She doesn't like it, but that's what I call her. Taylor is our sweet one. She's happy all the time. She makes friends very easily. Not much phases her except any sort of insect or bug, including the big scary ones like ants. (laughs) Annika is our third born. And I remember the moment she was born, as soon as she heard my voice, uh, she looked straight up at me like that. No no word of a lie. And I remember at that time just falling in love instantly and looking at her and thinking, man, she is beautiful. And then the next thought in my head was, she's going to be trouble." And Both of those prophecies have come true. She's a beautiful girl, but I know the uh, trouble part manifested itself when she was three years of age. She was going through a stage where she would hide stuff, uh, shoes and clothes and toys. and That was kind of cute in its own way until the day she decided to hide Kim's wedding ring, engagement ring, watch and earrings down the toilet never to be seen again. That was not a good day in the Williams household. We forgave her after several years and she is an incredibly beautiful young girl. I have three nicknames for her. I call her my little cherub. I call her D because her middle name is Diaz, and I call her little one because she'll always be my little one. Annika is a sensitive soul. Her number one spiritual gift would definitely not be house cleaning, but she is caring, loving, and she's very kind, which brings us to our little man, number four, and absolutely definitely a full stop on our family. His name's Lenny. I call him Len, Leno, or most of the time I call him Bud. And I'll never forget the scan when we found out he was a boy. I've told this story before, but some of you haven't heard it. I remember, uh, we had three daughters already and, and people used to say to me, well, you must really want a boy. And I used to give the political correct answer. You know, the politically correct answer. No. As long as the baby's healthy, right? You said that yourselves, most of you. I said it as well. But I remember going for the scan and the lady scanning, uh, Kim's tummy and she said, baby is a boy. And I'm like, yes! And, and, (laughs) And they turned around and looked at me, and I said, that came out loud, didn't it? And, and they said, yes, it did, very loud. Um, but I was stoked to have a boy, and I remember the moment he was born. It was a real sense of relief, a relief because Kim had been pushing too long for someone with a heart condition, um, so it was a relief that he came out, but also a relief because I had people in my life who I no longer talk to who said that sometimes those scans are wrong. And it might actually still be a girl. And so I remember the moment he was born, he was like Anika. He looked straight up into my eyes. I saw his eyes and I looked down and I was like, it's a boy. (laughs) Never been so happy uh, to see that area of the body. Um, But that day, I was very happy to know that I now had a son. And he's been an amazing gift to us. He's a lot like Taylor. He's a very happy, easygoing, fun, cheeky little boy. And he's daddy's boy. Even though if you ask him, he'll say he's mummy's boy, but he's wrong. He's daddy's boy. <laughs> and so as a family, we've had many highs and we've had many lows. Our wedding day, our honeymoon, the birth of our children, the milestones of our family, building houses, moving houses, making friends, losing friends, joy, disappointment, moving churches, moving suburbs, changing schools, surgeries, diabetes, succeeding, failing. But the thing is, we've done it all together. And the truth is that each person in our family is unique. And each person in our family brings something to our family that enriches our family unit. And there's no doubt that over the years, by sticking at it through thick and thin, our love for one another and our relationship has grown in richness and it's grown in depth um, because we've persevered. And so you're probably thinking to yourself today, why are you telling me, all about your family. The first reason is that you've got to uh, have an AGM in a few weeks. And one of the agenda items is that you've got to call a senior pastor or a lead pastor. And so I thought it was only fair you know everything about me before you uh, appoint me so you can make an educated decision. But the second reason is that we get to 1 Timothy 5 today. And I think that Paul is making the point that church is so much more than just a gathering once a week on a Sunday. But being part of a church saved by Jesus Christ and brought together actually makes us family. And so look around you today and you'll see a bunch of people, not just people you see on a Sunday, but what you see around you is family. And one of the things I love about the family of God is that I I look out and I see all sorts of cultures and I see all sorts of backgrounds and I see all sorts of ages. And I love the fact that the thing that brings us together as family is Christ in chapter 3. Paul says to Timothy, if I'm delayed, uh, this letter will help you to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Now, who do you usually find in households? Well, generally speaking, you find families. This week, I walked through Lakeside Square, this estate, and I took about 45 minutes to walk around. And and as I walked around, I um, prayed over all the houses that I came across. And I've got to say, it was Quite an overwhelming experience. You, you don't realize how many houses there are in just one estate like this and, and all of a sudden you realize how many people there are, uh, in those houses that, that don't know Jesus. And so if you want something to sort of shake us out of our complacency as a church, uh, it's to realize how many people right around us live here but are, are right now heading to an eternity without Jesus. And so if you ever get complacent, go for a walk in your neighborhood and and do a prayer walk and you'll realize that there are many people that need to come and know the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back going, look how well it's going. We should be saying, man, it's awesome that God's brought these people together, but there's so many more people that God's calling us to reach. As I prayed over the houses this week, statistics would tell me that I prayed over some houses where some pretty awful stuff is happening inside those doors. In our area, we have an epidemic of domestic abuse. Many people who are experiencing loneliness and isolation, divorce, broken homes, unwanted pregnancies, youth suicide is a massive issue in our community, people struggling to eat regular meals. And I knew that some of the houses I prayed over would have been struggling with or affected by one or more of these issues. And so my prayer was simply this, God, would you use us as a church To bring hope and healing into some of these heartbreaking situations in our community. Imagine if people looked at us as a church and not only did they see individual families thriving within this church community, but what if they looked at us and they saw a spiritual household that was flourishing? That we would be the people that God's called us to be a city on a hill the light of the world, a beacon of hope to the world around us, to model to the world around us what the redeemed people of God should actually look like. The world should look at us and get a picture of God's redemptive purposes for the world as he picks up broken people and he brings them together in Christ. This is what I call gospel living. This is why as a church, we always want to keep Jesus Christ at the very center of who we are and all we do. We could put music at the center and we'd become a performance-based church. We could put doctrine at the center, and we'd become legalistic. We could put mission at the center, and we'd become works-based. We could put a pastor at the center, and God help us. We'd become ego-driven. We could put people at the middle, and we'd become slaves to popularity. Now, there's nothing wrong with all these things. In fact, they're good things, but the truth is they become better things when Christ is at the center of who we are as a church. And so our challenge is to keep Jesus as the center We know that we're not a perfect community, don't we? We know that because Jared's here. (laughs) We know that because I'm here. And we know that because you're here. We're not a perfect community. We'll fall short in many ways. But when Christ is at the center, we will be a family full of forgiveness and grace. We will be a family who loves one another with self-sacrificial love and service. We'll be a family characterized by joy, by peace, by faith. We'll be a family where the broken experience wholeness, will be a family where the outcast is loved and accepted, will be a family safe from abuse. Can you imagine if people in our community looked at our church and they got a glimpse of what family could look like? People who've come from broken homes, no dad around, mum and dad fighting, isolated, lonely. Imagine if they looked at us and they got a glimpse of what family possibilities there are. I think this is what God is calling us to. And I think that as we become like this, we will be so attractive to people in our community. I think people will want to be part of something like that because it connects with one of the greatest needs of the human heart and that need is relationship. In the very beginning, God said it's not good for man to be alone and nothing's changed. It's not good for us to be alone. But in the the culture we live in, one of the challenges is this, that that many people have moved here from closer to the city because they couldn't afford to live there. And they've moved out here, they don't know the area, they don't know anyone, they're lonely, they're isolated, they're by themselves. And I it hit me the other day as I was walking through this community to think how many people in this community right now are are lonely. And I think this is one of the realms where the church can have a huge impact because we can offer a place to belong in Christ no matter what age you are or what background you have come from. Imagine if the church became the solution for the loneliness of our community by living as the family of God. Paul turns his attention to this in 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we continue our series called Pattern. So far in the letter he's laid out to Timothy a pattern for many practical things. Instruction on godly character, the roles of men and women in the church, godly leadership, doctrine and Christian living. But now in this chapter, he highlights how we're to live together as a family. So there's three things I want to highlight from these words today. And the first one is this, that families, when they're operating as families should, families respect one another. Verse one of the passage, if you've got your Bibles there, says this. says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Can you see the family emphasis in these words? Older women, younger women. Older men, younger men. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers. This is a family that he's talking about. You know, one of the things I've most appreciated about Follow so far is the intergenerational mingling I see happening. I see it when people gather in houses during the week. I see it after our services. I see it in the way we interact with one another. And and I watch older men with younger men. And I watch older women with younger women. And it's a beautiful thing to see this mingling of family because family is made up of all different ages. And I love that. I love that um, we're a church that, that gathers together different ages loving one another. Because I think a lot of the time in church life, we see an an argument going on, don't we, between the older generation and the younger generation. They talk about all the negatives of of what makes us different and why we don't get on, and and basically it boils down to the fact that that older people love really loud drums, and they just want loud music, whereas young people just can't get enough hymns, right? Isn't that right? (laughs) I can't get the young people to stop talking about hymns. I can't get the old people to stop talking about the drums they love. And so it's very hard to get them to work together. But what we need to realize is that it's a real blessing having a variety of ages because we don't compete with one another. We actually complement one another. And we all play a really unique role in what makes a church such as this a family. And so in this passage, Paul gives Timothy instructions on how to foster this kind of culture bearing in mind that he was the pastor of the church. And he starts by saying, Timothy, treat the older men with respect and hold them up as you would hold up your father. Now, I have an earthly father and I'm very blessed with the dad I've got. He's been an incredible role model, uh, a man I look to, a man that's led our family with integrity and incredible love. Um, But I also have been very blessed to have older men in, in my church experiences that have also been like spiritual fathers as well. They've invested into my life and they've sown into my life and I'm a much better person as a result of what they've given. And so this is what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's saying, don't underestimate the older men in your church, but look at them like they're your dad. Don't see them as outdated or old or irrelevant because you need those men in your life. The things they've seen, the successes they've had, the failures, the experiences, Young men at follow church, can I commend to you some of the older men in our church. They won't see themselves as older, but they're simply in denial. You know who they are, and deep down they know who they are as well. And so can I encourage you to seek out older men in this congregation who you can learn from and grow through their experience and wisdom as they invest in your life. Finding a mentor is a a great thing to do. And so as John said a moment ago, I'd encourage you to seek out those men that you can learn from. It's a beautiful thought, I think, to to think that people can come from broken homes with no father around and they can come into a church like this and the dad they never had they can find in the spiritual fathers in a church such as this. They can experience wholeness and healing that comes from a church family. So don't underestimate the older men in the congregation. He then says, treat the younger men as brothers. I love this. This is a discipleship, isn't it? Uh, don't, don't forget the older men. They'll invest into your life. But now, don't forget the younger men, invest into their life. What you're learning from the older men is now flowing down into the younger men. This is what we call discipleship. Timothy, don't look down on the younger men. Don't be condescending. Don't set yourself up here like you're here and they're here. No, no, treat them like brothers. Now I've got brothers and we stick together. We fight shoulder to shoulder. We're arm in arm. We love one another. We want to see each other flourish in life. And so treat the other guys in the church like your brothers. Treat the older women like you would your mum. Now, let me make it clear, there are no older women in our church. There's just some more mature women in our church. Um, but we do have some more mature women and that's wonderful. And t- says, Paul says to Timothy, treat those women like you treat your mum. Now, Paul's making the assumption that Timothy is a good Christian man that would treat his mum nicely. And maybe the Holy Spirit's working on some of us today. Maybe you don't treat your mum the way you should. Maybe you uh, underappreciate her, take her for granted. Uh, maybe today you could go home and change that. This afternoon, call her up, tell her you love her, send her some flowers, do something to show you appreciate her. But treat the older women like you would your mum. Honour her, honour them, value them, cherish them, respect them. And then he says, treat the younger women like your sister. Now, I never had a younger sister. I had two brothers and uh, we used to fight and we used to you know, rough and tumble. We'd do all the stuff brothers did. And To be honest, back then I never really wanted a sister. I know my mum did, and I know when I, we started pushing out kids uh, and they were daughters, she was stoked because the, uh, the scales were starting to tip back in her favor, and I know she was very happy about that. But now I, I know I have many sisters, and if I wanted a sister, I, I'd choose a sister like Mercedes Wenz uh, with her accent and everything, or, or a Rihanna Shrews or a Hannah Granger, and, and, and these guys aren't biologically my sisters, but, but they're now my sisters in Christ. And so I want to, I want to serve them. I want to see them grow in their faith. I want to see them protected. I want to see them flourish in their giftings because I see them as my, my little sisters. And so I'd become quite protective of my little sisters. And so he says, Timothy, treat your sisters with absolute purity. What he's trying to get across is this, that families respect one another. So families respect one another. Secondly, families care for one another. This year on my birthday, 2nd of March, I spent the day building walls at our new church offices. So I was down there for the day building walls, and by the end of the day, I'm not used to the physical work anymore, so I was pretty tired. I got home, and I just wanted to have a shower. Um, Catalina turned up with a birthday cake, which was nice, and so we had the cake. It was obscenely large, about this big, um, and so that was really good. And then as soon as that was over, we had dinner as a family, I had a shower, and we got the kids into bed. Um, Adele was out for the night, Taylor and Lenny went to bed and Annika was on a school camp at Mill Valley Ranch and I was just looking forward to the evening with my wife and we were going to watch a movie together and so we sat down and we put the movie on and it got over halfway through to that good part of the movie where you're kind of wondering what's going to happen, how's this going to end, uh, when my phone rings, uh, 10 o'clock at night it doesn't ring that often at that time of night and usually when it does it's not good news and I picked up the phone and it was one of Annika's teachers. She said, Luke, it's so-and-so here and I'm just ringing to let you know that Annika feels sick and she's wondering if you could come and pick her up. <laughs> what? I said, well, in the morning? She said, no, no, now. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, great. Okay, and so I know Annika well. And I know that when she's in environments with lots of people, she gets anxious and that makes her feel sick. And so she's on a school camp, it's 10 o'clock at night. I know that she's probably not sick with gastro, she's probably anxious and there's a good chance in the morning I'm gonna have to drive her back to the camp and that's exactly what happened. I picked her up uh, in the middle of the night and I, I, I took off, so I got up off the couch I was in my jammies. You've got to understand, I love my jammies. It's my favorite time of the day. And when I get in the jammies, it's like the point of no return. I'm not going anywhere once I'm in my jammies. And so I've got to take my jammies off, get my clothes back on, get in the car, drive into the middle of nowhere. I don't know if you've ever been to Mill Valley Ranch, but it's scary at night. I mean, it's in Tainong North, and there's unsolved murders there. And, and like, I'm in the middle of the night. You know my history with GPS. I'm lost in the back streets of Tynong North thinking that killer might be here right now. I might never make it out of here. Eventually, after about half an hour of being lost, I found my way to Mill Valley Ranch and I picked up Annika and took her home only to take her back to camp the next morning. Now, did I want to go and pick her up? Uh, was I excited about it? Uh, was I thrilled to go and to leave the movie and to leave my wife and to put my birthday aside? To be honest, not really. I wasn't really that thrilled about it. Did I do it? Yes, in a heartbeat. Why? Because she's family. And even if it's just anxiety, I want to be there for my little girl. I want to protect her. I want to wrap her up in my arms. I want to love her and I want to go and be with her. And so I went and got her. And this is a picture of what it's like for us as church. We're to love one another like that. Uh, My concerns should be your concerns. Your concerns should be my concerns. This is what the Bible calls bearing one another's burdens, loving one another sacrificially. Families care for one another. At Follow, we talk a lot about being missional. And we talk a lot about our desire to to reach people in the world around us, to be a blessing everywhere we go. And I think for a church that's less than a year old, we're doing some really significant stuff in our community. And I'm so grateful to be put with a bunch of people who just want to serve the local community. Uh, In a few weeks, we're looking to start a food van, which is going to be stationed down at Pakenham Station two nights a week, at Burke Park there. It's a notorious crime hotspot. A lot of people that are struggling and hurting sort of congregate there. And so every Tuesday and Thursday night from 6 till 9pm, we're going to be there giving food and more importantly, giving friendship. We're going to be partnering with an organisation called Orange Sky, who were the young Australians of the year this year. And they've got a, a van where they have washing machines and dryers on the back and they go around and they wash and dry clothes for homeless people. They've just done a new initiative where they've got another truck with a shower block on the back, and so people can have a warm shower. And so we're going to be gathering together an initiative that we're calling the Bless Collective, where we're collecting, collectively working together to actually bless our community. And it's a wonderful thing. This week, we've got Seth Franco from the Harlem Globetrotters in the USA coming down to the southeast of Melbourne. And as a church, we're hosting him in five schools. And he's going into those schools, and he's going to talk to kids about the things that they're struggling with resilience, bullying, self-esteem, confidence, decision-making, their future, and we believe it's going to be a huge blessing as we come alongside the schools to work with them. We have a breakfast program every Tuesday morning at Officer Secondary College, where once again we provide food and a place for friendship. We have a mainly music play group for young mums that meets in this building, for young mums and dads to gather from our community and find relationships. We have an MCG group that does care packs full of washing powders and detergents and another one full of personal care items and sometimes full of food. And we give them out to people in our community who are struggling. And so as a church, we want to be a blessing and we make no apologies for that. We're here and we believe this region, God's called us here and this region should be a more blessed region because God's placed Follow Baptist Church here. And so we make no apology for caring for the world around us. But it should never mean that we neglect those in need in our own church family. It's not either or, it's both. In Galatians 6, verse 10, it says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. There's a lot of teaching in the Bible about caring for those on the outside of the church family. But Paul now turns his attention to those on the inside of the family. And he focuses in particularly on those that are hurting, those who are marginalized, those who are broken. This is Jesus-centric teaching. When we look at his life, you you just got to look where Jesus gathered. He gathered with those on the margins. The hurting, the broken, he was bent that way. He spoke up for those who didn't have a voice. And Paul encourages Timothy in his spiritual family to do the same thing, to care for those who are struggling. And in this letter, there's a particular focus on widows. Now, just this week, I had the um, privilege of being able to visit a lady whose husband's I, funeral I conducted six weeks ago. He died of a heroin overdose. And this week, I was able to go and visit her. She came to the door in her dressing gown, and she said, do you want to come in? And I said, no, don't think so. I'll stay right here. Um, but I had a couple of care packs for her. Full of stuff. One was full of food. One was full of cleaning items. And I said, I'm Luke. I conducted your husband's funeral. I've just come over. Our church wants to give you these packs just to say that we're here. And if you need anything, we're here to help. And for the next 15 minutes, I stood at her doorstep chatting and she was telling me about her life. She has four young children. She's completely isolated. She has no transport. She has very little income. And with tears streaming down her face, she told me that her son does not have a single male role model in his life, not one positive influence. As we continued to talk, she talked of her desire to coming and joining a church community such as this, because she said these words. She said, every time her husband went to church regularly, he was a better person. And I thought, wow, what an amazing thing to think that we're a family here that can make a difference in the lives of people. And this is where it's important to care for those not just outside the church, but also inside the church. At the moment, she's outside. She doesn't know Jesus. Our prayer is that she'll come to know the Lord. But if we care for her before she knows Jesus, and then she eventually comes here, gives her life to Lord, and becomes part of our church family, and no one talks to her, then it's going to be counterproductive, isn't it? And so we need to be a group of people who care for the lost and the hurting outside of the church, but also care for those inside the church. One of the struggles, i um, oh, sorry, talking about widows uh, in Paul's culture, widows were, were, you know, there was a lot of them in the church. And, and the main reason is that in that culture, women were very highly dependent on their husbands. And so when their husbands passed away, they didn't have any mechanism for support. They didn't have the welfare that we have today. And so they were pretty much left alone. And so the church, as part of the ministry, took widows into the church and cared for them. It was a beautiful thing. And so they would come in and they would be cared for. And many of them would would make a vow that. As part of that, they would come and they would serve in the church. And Paul says in verse 5, he makes the point that we need to care primarily for those widows who are really in need. In verse 9, he says, if they're not over 60, don't even put them on the list. The point he's trying to get across is this, that the older people made a vow to serve God in the church and the younger people made a vow also, but inevitably the younger ones wanted to get married. So they would break their vow and then they'd go and get married. So in verse 14, Paul says he actually counsels them to remarry and avoid being idle or breaking the vow that they had made. One of the struggles I find in church life, particularly as a pastor, is to know who to help first in a church family where there are often so many needs and often such limited resource. And I think Paul gives some helpful advice to Timothy in this regard. He says, you're the pastor of the church, Timothy. Don't forget that when people are hurt and broken, the primary responsibility to care for them is with their biological families. And so if you've got support in your family, that's the first port of call. We as families need to support those in our family that are struggling. When families can't care for those in their family, that's when the church comes in and helps out more. And so what he's trying to say, I think, is that we should see the church as a place of care, not a place of convenience. It's not like, I oh, well, my mum and dad are struggling, but they're at the church so they can take care of it. No, no, your responsibility is to care for your family. And when you can't, and when people don't have anyone to care for them, that's when the church comes in. And so we're there for care, not for convenience. The whole point of this part is to say that families respect one another, but families also care for one another. And so he finishes this passage by then turning the conversation to elders. It seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Okay, families, you've got to care for one another. Families, you've got to... Um, uh, respect one another, but now he turns to elders. Why does he do that? Well, I think that elders are called to oversee the church family. Their job is to help foster this kind of community where we love and serve one another. We said a few weeks ago the role of elder is not a position of power and prestige, but rather a position of sacrifice and service. This passage says that elders are worthy of honour. In, ver- in fact, in verse 17, It says they're worthy of double honor. But let me counteract that by saying this. If an elder needs to demand that you honor them, they shouldn't be an elder. Because if they're actually living out the role they're called to live out, they're the sort of people we want to honor We look at their life, we see these people are people that are sacrificing for the congregation, caring for the flock. They love God's word. They're prayerful. They're spirit-led. And they're not just opinion-led, they're spirit-led people. They're the sort of people that we look at and go, wow, I want to be like that person. And I've got no problem honoring and respecting that person because they're living out what they're meant to live out as an elder. It says elders are worthy of honor, but they're also worthy of their wages. In verse 18... It says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves its wages. Now, we're going to have elders in a few weeks. I'm not sure if they'd like to be called oxes. Um, I'm not sure whether they take that as a compliment, but I think the word ox gives a bit of a, a demonstration on what elders should be. Oxes are strong, they're dependable, and they're hardworking, and elders should be as well. In scripture, the term elder is interchangeable with pastor and overseer. And in our culture and in our church, we have pastors who do the work of an elder vocationally. And so they are paid to do this role because it's the vocation God's called them to, to live out. But we also have elders who are voluntary. So they actually have other um, careers that brings in an income. And so they do it voluntarily. And so most of our elders will be um, voluntary and some of them will be vocational. But they're worthy of honor. They're worthy of ages, wages. Sorry but they also must be accountable. And I think this is really important. Let me finish on this. It says, Any accusation or sin against an elder should come from two or three witnesses. And if it's found to be true, they should be disciplined and reproved before the congregation publicly. I think this is so important in light of the abuse and stuff that's happened in churches. Churches have swept stuff under the carpet. They've protected people who've done the wrong thing. And we're not called to do that. When elders do the wrong thing, they need to be reproved and and rebuked and brought before the congregation. And they need to repent. And, and we need to be completely transparent with that. And so you've got what you need to actually keep our elders accountable. Verse 22 says it's very important that elders are appointed wisely and prayerfully. Verse 22, don't be hasty in laying on of hands. This is talking about the appointment of leadership. On the 5th of June, we're appointing deacons and elders, God willing. And you'll be able to vote on that as the members of the church. But let's not appoint people hastily, let's look at the biblical qualifications and let's do it prayerfully and wisely. Church, my prayer is that Follow Baptist Church will be a family where you can belong. A family led by godly leaders who will lead us to respect and care for one another so that we would be light in the darkness of our world and a representation of how amazing family can be. And that each of us in our uniqueness will contribute to this for the glory of God.